have an outline that is the same outline that I handed out last month. And so uh, we are working through chapter 14 of systematic theology. And so um, by way of review, the, what we covered essentially was number A last time. There's a thesis here on our in our a thesis statement concerning the Trinity. And it is this. There are three parts to it. There is one God and only one God. Number two, the one and only God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number three, each of these three persons is fully God. That's the Trinity in a nutshell. And now we, uh, we've looked at an, an introduction of that concept, and particularly we see that there are Old Testament revelations of the Trinity, uh, both in references in the Scripture and in events that occurred. So we see God, the Father, in creation, for example, we see God the Son in creation. We see God the Holy Spirit in creation. And we also see references in, in the Word in the Old Testament. So there's, there is some revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it is gradual. Um, we're, not even, we're not even sure that the authors of these books under God's inspiration fully understood the Trinity. But we do. <laughs> we do because we have God's word to us specifically about that. Specifically about that. So we have a number of Old Testament and New Testament um, scriptures. And I think that it's interesting too, one of the things that is uh, most um, significant to me is how God uses the Old Testament to prove this concept in the New Testament. And specifically in Hebrews 1.8, we have a direct application of Psalm 110. But of the Son, He says, this is God the Father speaking in the Old Testament about the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I'm sorry, that's not 110, but that is from the Old Testament. And then later, Psalm 110 is quoted, sit at my... And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And of course, Jesus himself asked the most difficult question he ever asked anyone, apparently. How can you say that David is speaking about the Messiah, calling him Lord when he comes after him? And the Pharisees, the scribes, couldn't answer that and never did. And they never asked him any more questions. 
until they killed him. So, that is the review, in a nutshell, of of where we were last time. And now let me say that we're going to start at uh, B, three statements summarizing the biblical teaching. Number one, God is three persons. That's what we're going to talk about today. God is three persons. The fact that God is three persons means that each person of the Trinity is distinct from the other two persons. So, it's really not difficult for us to comprehend that there is only one God. One God, and we sang songs about that from Deuteronomy. The Lord is one. And we believe that, and that's true. And God also exists as three persons. And I think that's the difficult part for us to comprehend. That's, a, that's difficult for us to get our minds around. And so this takes faith. God says it, and I believe it. And this is how God has chosen to exist. So it would be convenient for us to discount that or to try to change that or not want that to be that way for some reason because it doesn't fit into our our reason perhaps how can how can one god exist in three persons and still be one god see to the world when you when you look at all the uh, theological and philosophical arguments that are out there this is one of the most difficult concepts for the world to accept. And they say because it's not reasonable. Because it's not reasonable. Because in, in the reason, in, in the human reason, it has to be one or the other. It can't be both. So that's where I think our faith comes in. That we believe that what God has told us is true. And so let's look at places where God has shown us that the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct from one another. And that's one of the essential elements of having three persons is that they in some ways are distinct. Even though they're unified in purpose, they're unified in substance, they're unified and yet they have distinctions of personality distinctions of function, distinctions of behavior, distinctions of, of action. And we're going to look at each of those distinctives. Let's look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 1, 1 through 3. Now I'm going to take a little bit of a side trip here, because this is one of the most fascinating, um, <laughs> this is one of the most fascinating things to me. And, and I guess also in, in the history of my um, walk with the Lord, when I realized this, it was a major um, it was a major revelation to me personally in my spirit when I first realized this. And, um, and I couldn't get enough of it. I was gobbling it up from 
teachers and preachers and and people who had written on it. And I think Brother Paul mentioned this uh, when he came and talked to us um, up here when he was at the you know when the room was turned around and he was up there. <clears throat> um, and here's the here's the amazing thing is that the word is referring to Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. So, so the Greek here is logos, which means word. And, and so God spoke the word, and also God is the word. God places a high, high value on His word. And consequently, that's why he places a high value on our words, right? There, there are some things that God hates. And one of those things is lying lips. So, and, and in the New Testament, he says, don't lie to one another anymore. This will be, this will be the hallmark of a Christian. Someone who is not a liar. And he says things like, and you know that liars will not Inherit the kingdom. See, so this is something that we have to turn away from, lying, and turn toward the truth. Speak the truth in love. Truth is everything to God. Truth is everything to God. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Truth is essential. So the Word, we have the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now the point here is that, that if the Word was with God, if the Word is Jesus Christ, and the Word was God, that's what this scripture teaches. The word was God. So we know that Jesus Christ is God. And that he existed before anything was made. And that through him all things were made. So he participated with God the Father in creation. But the distinctive here is the word was with God. And so, so the word God here, theos, did I say that right? That's kind of with the Texan accent. <clears throat> Theos. Um, that, that Greek word is, is God, and it refers to God the Father. The word here refers to God the Son. And they were together. Which, which says to me, if, if they're together, that means there are two of them. <laughs> there are two persons, and yet one God. And it's right here in this one verse. In John 1.14, we see that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was Jesus, this word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And another evidence of that is in Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Can anyone tell me who this is on this white horse? Jesus Christ, absolutely. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is undoubtedly Jesus Christ, who is at the end of things coming out of heaven in judgment. And he's powerful. And he will execute the will of the Father. And so we see that distinctive, that, that both are God, one God, they act in perfect unison, and yet the will of the Father, the, the will is expressed through the Father, and the, the doing, the execution of it is through the Son. I want to talk a little bit about John 1.18. The, I looked at four different translations of this um, in preparation for this, uh, this message. And it's really interesting that, that there are two different translations of this scripture from from the original manuscripts. So sometimes when you're reading your Bible and you see that a certain translation has a certain word and you see a different word in a different translation, it could be because of translation philosophy, differences in, in theory of translation, for example. So, so you get a slightly different uh, flavor from one to the other. In this case, it's not because of translational philosophy, it's because the actual manuscripts that these translations came from had a different word in it. And so, and so what we affirm, what we affirm is that the original manuscripts of the authors themselves are inerrant. There's no error. Because, because the word of God is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and we believe that God, that God inspired the very words that are in these original manuscripts. But we do have a, a difference here, and I wanted to point that out. In John 1.18, the, there are two words here that we're going to look at. One is monogenes, and the other is 
Theos and Hios. Are there any Greek scholars here? I should have had that little, what do you call it, that audio um, thing on where it tells me what, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, in, in all, in, in, in each of these ancient manuscripts, monogenes is used in all of them. So that's common. But then it's the next word that's different from one to the other. And that is in one manuscript, it is theos. And the other, the word is hyos. And the difference is that theos means God and hyos means son. So when I was researching this, this topic and I looked at John 1.18, I thought, oh, that's not what it says. Because I was looking at the ESV and that's not the one that I was using back in ancient days when I first learned the word. So, so here's what it says in the ESV. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The one I learned in New King James says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And so we see that that in the, in the manuscript that uses the word for Son... Of course, the translations translate it son. But the, the, the NIV just takes the both, best of both worlds and they say both. In the NIV, it says no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. And so, so the point here is that this verse illustrates the trinity either way either way it's an illustration of the trinity it's a declaration of the trinity so in the esv if you follow that one it says no one has ever seen god and the implication here is god the father theos no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known so that's a that's a description of the son god the son and, and the reason they're distinct is it shows that one is at the side of the other. So, so they're distinct in person. And, and it also shows the closeness of that relationship in that Jesus Christ is the only one, the only person, the only human who has ever seen God the Father. They were together in all eternity. And they're together now. The scripture says when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he went and sat at the right hand of God the Father. So there they are together. And, if, and even if you accept the word hyos, son, no man, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So that, that also shows that Jesus Christ, God the Son, knows God the Father intimately. He is well acquainted with Him. He is the only one who has ever seen Him. In John seventeen twenty four, 
The scripture says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In this passage, we see Jesus speaking to God the Father in prayer. And he declares to his father that he's just declaring that they were together before the foundation of the world. And it shows also that God the Son is distinct from God the Father in, in two ways. One is that they loved one another. So, so we have God the Father before anything was ever made, before there was a heaven or earth or anything, there was God. And we have God the Father loving God the Son. And God the Son loving God the Father. And also that they give glory to one another. So, so God the Father gives glory to the Son and God the Son gives glory to God the Father. And this is a scripture I think that is really important if you're ever talking to someone who does not believe in the Trinity. And that is because God says many times in the Old Testament that you're not to worship any other. You're not. In fact, he says very specifically, I will give my glory to no other. So if God is almighty and all powerful and jealous and refuses to share his glory with anyone besides himself. Then why would Jesus ask to be glorified? Why would Jesus ask to receive the glory of God the Father? There's only one answer that's, that's reasonable. And that is because He is God. And because He's pointing out here, we shared glory. We, we've shared glory from, from all eternity. And we continue to share glory in all eternity. Well, in what other ways does the Scripture show that the persons in the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are distinct? In, in 1 John 2.1, we see that, that Jesus Christ is an advocate for His people, for those who believe in Him. 1 John 2.1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is shown here acting as an advocate, that is a spokesman for his people. And what does an advocate do? An advocate takes the situation of the one he represents and he stands before someone else on their behalf. Sometimes in the scripture it's referred to as a mediator. A mediator. One who stands between. So, so if Jesus Christ is acting as an advocate with God the Father. That would only make sense if he's distinct from him in some way. 
Otherwise, he's just he's just representing someone to himself, and that that doesn't really make sense. So Jesus is a spokesman or an advocate for believers. And the same principle is seen in Hebrews 7.25. Do you want me to sing this? This is a CEF song. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Someone who intercedes for someone else is their advocate. Their advocate. So how are we saved? Completely? By going to God through Jesus Christ, our intercessor. He intercedes. That means he he draws a line between. He prevents the wrath of God from coming upon us. How did he do that? By, by paying the price for our sin. By, by covering us with His blood. That's why He's able to save us completely. <laughs> That's good news. That's the good news. That, that Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, came to earth to die for our sins and he did die and now we who come to him remember what I quoted a while ago Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me Jesus said so So Jesus intercedes for us. He comes between us and the wrath of God. And at the... Well. (laughs) Let's turn our attention to the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. Here we have Jesus speaking to his disciples before he left the earth. And he is telling them the bad news. Remember what the bad news is? The bad news is I'm going to die, Jesus told them, and I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away. And they're kind of bummed out about that. Because they've gotten used to him and they love him and they want to follow him. They love his words. They love his teaching. They love everything about Jesus. But he says, hey, it's good. It's a good thing for me to go away. And here's what he said. But the helper or comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. 
So here in this one little verse, we see several things. First of all, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. Sent by the Father. So in our, in our confession, the, the creed says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He, he comes from the Father. He is sent by the Father. And when He's sent, He goes. Because both the, Father, both the Son and the Holy Spirit always obey the will of the Father. Always. So when the Father sends the Holy Spirit, He comes. So He's distinct from the Father. The Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father. How can He be sent from the Father if He's exactly in every respect the same? He's, he's not, it's not going to happen. So, so He's a distinct person. Distinct person. Later on, don't worry, later on we're going to talk about how they're all one. <laughs> we're going to get back to that point. But I think it's important as we analyze these things that we really focus and hammer on each of these elements. So today I'm hammering on the element that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. But we have to always, every time we hear that, we think, but they're one. <laughs> but they're one. Don't lose sight of that. So what else will the Holy Spirit do when He comes according to John fourteen twenty six, He will cause the disciples to remember what Jesus said. So this is a, a distinctive of the Holy Spirit that He's always pointing to Jesus. He's always reminding us of what Jesus said, what Jesus meant, what Jesus wants, what God the Father wants. The Holy Spirit is giving glory to the Father and the Son. That's his function. It's one of his functions. So the Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus and Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit in the third person. That is, Jesus refers to him as he. When, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will do this. See, he doesn't say, I will do this when I come as the Holy Spirit. That's what the modalists would say, is that Jesus was here for a while it's kind of in the form of Jesus, and then he came back in the form of the Holy Spirit. And that's, but that's not true. That's not right. They're distinct persons. Distinct persons. And Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in the third person, that is, as he. Distinct and separate in that sense from himself. Let's look at Romans 8.27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is one of the things that I've noticed over and over as, as I'm studying the Trinity and, the, and the, when, when, you're, when you're trying to focus on distinctives in person is that over and over we see stated a phrase, the will of God. The will of God. And I, and I believe that we're talking about God the Father here being the person in the Trinity 
who expresses the will of the Godhead. And when I say the Godhead, I'm talking about the fact that God is one. So, so the one true God has a will. And, and usually, this will of the one true God is expressed through the Word of God the Father. So God speaks His will to men, for example. He, he speaks to His prophets. And He expresses His will and that is coming from God the Father. And we see over and over, and Jesus said this several times in His ministry, I don't do my own will. So why not? Why not? Why can't Jesus have a will? Because that's not His function. <laughs> his function is to do the will of the Father. And I think that's what you'll find. I think that you'll find a consistency here that when we see the phrase, the will of God, we're talking about as expressed through God the Father. So, so what the Spirit does here in Romans 8.27 is intercedes for the saints. Who are the saints? Us. The set apart. The set the 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 sanctified, the ones set apart by God for salvation. We're the saints. And so, so the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, but not just any old way. It's a, cer a certain way. He intercedes for us in a certain way. And how does he know how to do that? Well, he looks at the Father. And he says, here's the will of the Father. And that's how I'm going to intercede for you. According to the will of the Father. And who's being referred to here? He who searches hearts. Any idea? God the Father? I think that's I think that's so. I, I trace that bunny path down. <laughs> and I see in the scripture that I, I believe that this one is talking about God the Father. But also I see other places where where God the Son also searches hearts and knows the heart. They do this through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. So who knows our heart? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is one with us relates to God the Father and relates to God the Son. And He says, hey, how about this saint here? Let me tell you what his heart is like. Isn't that interesting to have a report that, that, there's, that there's someone living in you who's making a report after he searches your heart? 
Is that encouraging? <laughs> wow. Depends, huh? Let's look at a few of those scriptures. I think this is really cool. First Chronicles 28.9. Do I have time for this? <laughs> I love this couple. So well balanced. <laughs> Did y'all hear them? I said, do I have time for this? And Carol says, always. And Michael says, not much. <laughs> I'll be really short. First Chronicles 28, 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord, Yahweh, searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. The Lord searches hearts, knows every plan and thought. So, so the, the direction, the admonition here is, boy, you better know God. You, you better know God. You better serve him. You better do it with all your heart because God knows your heart. God knows your heart. Yes. Well, I don't know. I said I wouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Good point. Tom said... This God knows the heart of every man. True. The Holy Spirit lives in the heart of believers. God searches the heart of every man. We're going to see that again in a minute. Same, same idea, Tom. Zephaniah 1.12. Zephaniah 1.12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. Sounds like maybe these are unbelievers. Unbelievers who are being judged by God because he knows the secrets of their hearts. So they're lying. They become complacent because they don't think God will act. They say he's not going to do good and he's not going to do anything bad to us. He's just not even doesn't even care. Or maybe he's not there. That's what they're saying. And, and what's going to happen to them? God will punish them. Proverbs 15, 10 through 11. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, Yahweh. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproofs will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. See, our hearts are not closed. They're open to God. We can hide, we can lie, we can 
um, have great deception even to those around us. But God knows the heart. In Hebrews 4.12, we see a reference here to Jesus Christ as the judge, the one who searches hearts. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. So we we have to give account and we have the full the full deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are seeing our hearts, who are exposing our hearts, who are relating to one another, however they do it. Real time, constant, relaying, communicating, to one another about my heart. So I think I think that we see, have seen the distinctives here, but we also see the unity of purpose. The unity of purpose. And and there's a purpose in exposing our hearts. There's an there's a purpose in bringing us to repentance. God wants us to come to Him. But not on our own terms. God exposes every secret of our hearts. And you know, there's another scripture that says that what is done in secret here will be shouted from the housetops, from the rooftops. There's nothing hidden. The word says, confess your sins to one another, receive healing. And repentance, repentance is, is simply telling God what he already knows about our hearts. And yet there is a powerful release and relief that comes when I confess to God the sin of my heart. I was um, doing some spring cleaning yesterday. And I was thinking about this message and I thought, well, this is odd because I did this about six years ago when I brought this message on New Year's Day and, and the thing that I thought the Lord was telling me at that time was, I want to clean your heart more than you want to be clean. I want you to be cleaner than you want to be. And so as I'm cleaning my 
bathroom floor there scrubbing it just like I did six years ago. God reminded me of that message. And it broke my heart because he's still giving me that same message. And I think he has that same message for you. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And he wants you to be clean. He wants you cleaner than you've ever wanted to be. We need to open our hearts to him. We need to confess our sins to him. We need to forsake our sins in repentance. That means turn away from it. What is um, what is done in secret, we think, is going to be shouted. There is a judgment. There is a a day of accounting. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is nothing hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is serious. (laughs) Serious. Consider it. Soberly. And do it. 